Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 34. We'll be in Exodus 34 this morning. We're gonna try to cover the whole chapter. Not try, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, Lord willing. So we're gonna get through it together. Um, What I'd like to do is I wanna read through the whole chapter, then I wanna put it in context um, as we study this morning. I'll be honest with you, I've heard so many people say Daryl did such a good job last week, I'm wondering if I should look for a different job. (laughs) Find a different role here. Um, I thought Daryl did a tremendous job last week teaching. Um, He has such a gift. Um, He doesn't believe it, but he has such a gift in the way that he communicates with such... Uh, just tenderness and passion. You, you actually believe the things Daryl tells you, and that's hard to say for a lot of people, but you actually believe him when he tells you things. So we're thankful for him and for his family and his leadership here at our church. So Exodus 34, um, uh, on the screen will be some scripture we're gonna use this morning. It's, it's just a few passages. But 34, um, there's this portion in here that many scholars call the Old Testament version of John 3.16. So this is a passage that they would have memorized and quoted and put on poster boards at, Israeli football games. I don't know how they would do that. Uh, but this, this is kind of one of their core seminal texts. And so we're gonna look at that this morning. It's, it's birthed in a bunch of other stuff that's happening. So I want us to pay attention to that. This is week 38 of our Exodus series, by the way. And so well done. Um, we've got like 34 more to go and we should be done. No, we're getting there. Uh, so at this point, Moses has... Um, been up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. God's given him the 10 commandments. He's given him the blueprints of the tabernacle. And then while all that is happening, we learned a couple weeks ago, the people of Israel are down on the ground and they're worshiping an an idol, a golden calf. God hears of it, tells Moses. Moses goes down, there's this whole thing that happens. And then Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites because God is done with them. He's just done, and Moses intercedes, pleads with the Lord to remember his covenant, remember who he is, and I don't know the ins and outs of how it works with praying and God, and does he change his mind, does he not? I just know I wanna pray as if I can change God's mind by the passion by which I pray. And so God relents from what he was going to do, but now he's calling Moses back up the mountain for another conversation. So this is a follow-up to what he had just experienced before. So let's read through this together, and then we're gonna just study and ask the Lord to move. Verse one of Exodus 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I feel like what you broke is not necessary there. <laughs> I don't know if your wife talked to you that way like mine does. Like, I'm, I'm gonna redo this because you broke the other one. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. There's gonna be a lot of parallels between this and chapter 32 and the creation account. And to be honest, I just don't have time to cover all of it, but I believe God's taking us some way. But here you see, it's in the morning. Remember, they rose up early to worship the idol and now God's saying, rise up early and come to me. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountains that no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. When God called Moses up the first time, he said, bring the elders with you, leave the people at the base of the mountain. Now he's saying, I just, just you, no one else. In fact, don't even let the animals get close to the mountain. 
And he continues, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone and the Lord descended in the cloud. Remember, he's leading by a pillar of, of smoke or a cloud by day and fire by night. He descends in the cloud and stood with him there. So now God stands with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, proclaimed his own name, declared his name, Yahweh. Verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. Then pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And God said, behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These are the people who had occupied the land of Canaan, the promised land. Remember, God, I'm gonna drive them out and then you need to come up behind me and clean up um, what's left over. But look at this in verse 12. Take care, you can underline, circle that. Be careful, pay attention, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Ashram is a kind of tree, a tall tree, but it's a tree that many of the people in Canaan would have worshiped as a God or as an idol of a God. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons and their sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Said that word a lot in those two verses. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib, you came out of, from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Whole other sermon. And the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That's, that's what you have engraved on things in your house and like embroidered on pillows, that one, the young goat thing. You, we're familiar. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. 
So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Another set of 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. All right, so this is all, though, in context. We gotta remember, we need to study the Bible in context. There's plenty of things you can say out of this, but we gotta put it in context to understand what's actually happening here. Exodus 33 gave us an idea of what was to come in 34. Just need to make sure we were paying attention to it. So let's go to Exodus 33. It'll be on the screen. You can turn there if you want to. It's verses 18 and 19. Moses is pleading with the Lord. Don't destroy the Israelites. Remember your covenant. These are your people. It's gonna look bad if you destroy them. And so he begs with him. God relents. And then Moses said, okay, show me your ways. How did you arrive at this conclusion? God does. And then Moses, a bit greedy in his prayer, then says this in verse 18, please show me your glory. Now, we read the word glory and we think things glowing. We think the pillar of smoke and fire. When we, when we read glory, that's what we think of, isn't it? Like Shekinah glory. This is what we're picturing. It's interesting, though, how God responds to this request for, for, of Moses to, uh, God to show Moses his glory. This word glory means honor that comes from, it's earned through behavior. So show me why we should honor you with what he's asking. Show me what's honorable about you. When we sing of God's glory, what we're saying is your honor, you are honored above all. Now notice how God responds to the request for glory. Verse 19, God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you before you my name, the Lord Yahweh. Okay, so if you circle, if you write in your Bible, please do this. Circle the word glory and circle the word goodness and then draw a line to connect them. Here's what God does. Predominantly in scripture, when God speaks of his glory, he speaks of his goodness. In studying the doctrine of God, and we've studied this on Wednesday nights in our core class, the doctrine of God, there's two parts of the doctrine of God. One is uh, what's called the eternal part of God, that he is great. He's mighty and powerful and sovereign. That's the eternality of God. He is eternal. That's the, when we say that God is great, that's what we mean. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants to do it. Then there's this, also, there's this other side of God, the attribute of God, that is personal. It's what theologians call the personal attribute of God. And in that is where we find that he is good. It's important for us to understand that God is both great and good. If God is great but not good, he's Hitler. And if God is good but not great, he's a hippie. Does that make sense? It's both of them. So if we just believe God is great but he is not good, then we're worshiping a vengeful, lightning bolt throwing kind of God. If we believe that God is just good, but he's not great enough to accomplish his goodness, he's just a flower child who thinks sweet things. But God is both. He is, he is almighty and he is so good. And because of his greatness, he can accomplish his goodness. So here, where Moses asks for God's glory, what God is going to do is to show him his goodness. I'm gonna show you how good I am. I'm gonna show you the goodness of my nature, but I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna open your eyes to how I've revealed my goodness to you. And then I'm gonna proclaim my name before you, Yahweh. You're gonna know me, you're gonna know my character, you're gonna know who I am. Whenever you wrestle with God, the way that God is acting or behaving, what God will always do is he will draw you back to his character. He won't defend what he's doing. He will draw you back to who he is. And then he continues, 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What he says is, I decide who gets grace and gets mercy. It's me. And you're gonna see in my goodness that you can trust. You can trust my grace and my mercy. I'm a God of mercy. You can trust me in it. So this is what he's asking for then. God says, you can't see my face. I'm gonna pass before you. I'm gonna hide you in the cleft of a rock. I'm gonna hide you in a cave. I'm gonna pass my goodness before you. You're gonna get a, a whiff or a glimpse of my goodness, just enough. But what God is proving to Moses is, I know what I'm doing. I've heard your cries. I've heard your pleas for the people. And listen, you can trust me because I'm good. You can trust me because I'm good. Maybe for you this morning, that's what you need to hear. You can trust God because he's good. He's good. He's really, really good. So let's go back with this in mind because now we're gonna see this fleshed out in Exodus 34. This moment that Moses is asking for is now fleshed out in 34. Verse one, the Lord said to Moses, cut yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which by the way, you remember, you broke them. Be ready in the morning, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. Come in the morning. No one shall come with you. This time it's just you and me. I just need you and me. Um, then verse four, Moses does what he was supposed to do when he rises early in the morning, goes up Mount Sinai, and he takes the two tablets of stone. Now verse five, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now the cloud of God covers Mount Sinai. And here is where God proclaims his name to Moses. I will tell you who I am. Which should take us back to Exodus chapter three. I am who I am. You wanna know who's sending you? It's me. You wanna know who's making these decisions? It's the same me. Verse six, the Lord passed before him. So this is that moment where he passes before Moses, Moses in the cleft of the rock, and God proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh. Now he's gonna say, this is who I am. This is, how, this is my goodness. I'm gonna tell you my goodness. Here is my goodness. I am a God merciful and gracious. I withhold punishment people rightfully deserve and then I abundantly give them more blessings than they deserve. This is who I am. This is how God begins his introduction. I am slow to anger. This is a Hebrew euphemism and the phrase actually reads, I am long in nose. Anybody amen to that? The idea is that when you get angry, you felt it, your face gets flush and red and hot. And for the person who is long and knows, the idea is it takes longer for their anger to get there. So what they're saying here is that God is slow to anger. He's patient, abounding, overflowing, and steadfast love and faithfulness. This word steadfast love is the Hebrew, it's one of my favorite words in scripture, chesed. There's really no good English translation for it. We get steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, loving mercy comes out of this as well. The idea is it's a stubbornness of God. He's gonna be stubborn, gonna dig his heels in. I'm, I love you, there's nothing you can do about it. He's digging his heels in. This is the kind of love that God has for us. I, this is who he is, a merciful, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Although we might not be faithful to him, he continues to be faithful to us. This is what God is reminding Moses of. And I keep my steadfast love, my said for thousands. How do I do it? I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. And then watch this, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God cannot be good, gracious and merciful and look the other way when it comes to sin. He has to deal with sin if he's going to be good. The character of his goodness requires him to deal with sin. So what he's saying is, how good am I? 
Oh, I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm abounding in steadfast love and I'm slow to anger and I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but I do deal with it. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So when God passes his goodness by Moses and declares who he is, this is what Moses is hearing. God is bringing to mind his goodness bringing to Moses' mind how good God is. And the way that he shows how good he is is by this description. Now notice Moses' response in verse eight. He quickly bowed his head toward the earth. It's an act of humility and he worshiped. He humbles himself and then exalts God. God didn't show his glory in the great, big, huge, Shekinah glory, glowing lights everywhere. He didn't point Moses to the universe, didn't point Moses to the ocean or the size of the mountain. When God wants to declare his glory, he declares his goodness to us. When he wants to prove that you can trust him, that he's worthy of honor and glory and praise, he doesn't do it through creation. He does it through his goodness. And so Moses responds head bowed with worship. And then he says, if now, probably better translation is, since I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. God has said, I'm not gonna go. I'm gonna send you an angel. And Moses is like, I've heard too much now about your goodness. You've gotta go with us. And then he says this, for it is a stiff-necked people. You're right. They are a stubborn people which sounds a lot like he's blaming them, and I'm glad he continues. And he says, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Notice what Moses does. In response to the goodness of God, he bows his head and he worships and he accepts responsibility for his sin. This is what the Bible calls repentance. And the right response to the goodness of God is repentance. When God declares his goodness to us, the right and holy and biblical response is repentance. Now I wanna do some work to define repentance because it's a churchy word we just throw around a lot and it gets really muddy. And so I wanna just do some work here to describe what it is. But this idea of the goodness of God should be um, eliciting repentance from us is not an Old Testament idea. This is found in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter two, verse four, Paul writing the church at Rome and he's made this statement in, verse, in chapter one, the idea that God turns people over to their sin. The more they run from him, the more he's willing to let them run from him. And he turns them over to their sin and find themselves in all sorts of various passions and desires. And then he makes the statement at the beginning of chapter two of, hey, but don't be so quick to judge these people. Because when you judge, you need to understand that you're comparing sin and you should not do that. So he says this in verse four. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So just because you're walking in the grace and mercy of the Lord, don't assume you've got something figured out. To presume is to take lightly. Do you take lightly the goodness of God? Do you take lightly his kindness? Kindness is goodness in action. That's what kindness is. And then Paul makes the point, don't you understand it's this part of God that's supposed to spur us on towards repentance. Now, he doesn't say, my wrath is meant to lead you to repentance. So do you not know that it's my kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance? 
We'll talk about God's wrath here towards the end, but I just, I want to be clear here. God has never scared anyone into heaven. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard the pastors and the evangelists say things with your kids in the room. Hey, Johnny, when you die, don't you wanna go to heaven with mama? What eight-year-old boys are be like, no, I'd rather not, I'd rather not. So the response of him is, yeah, what do I do? And then Johnny walks the aisle and fills out some card and for the rest of his life has some faulty, false belief that he's given his life to Jesus. No, he's afraid of hell. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God. God invites us in with his goodness. He doesn't scare us out of hell and into heaven. He invites us into his presence, which is what I love about Jack this morning. His response of why do you want to, well, I want to follow God. Praise the Lord. Not because I'm afraid of hell or I, don't, I want to be with mama when I die. No, no, no. It's, I want to follow Jesus. He invites us in with his goodness. A number of years ago, my dad had a severe, pretty severe heart attack. We were all up in North Georgia with him, um, visiting for the weekend, and he just, out of nowhere, has a heart attack. Rushed to the hospital, you know, can't figure all the things out. They run a bunch of tests. Come to find out, uh, my dad had undiagnosed diabetes. And it was the diabetes that led him to this heart attack. And so there's this moment with my dad, I'm sure, in the hospital room, trying to figure out what's going on. And sure, there's the fear of death. There's the fear of leaving my mom with all of us and three million grandchildren. All of that is happening. And she, and, but there's this moment for my dad where he recognizes it's not that I'm afraid to die. It's that I still have life left to live. And he has a moment. Now, I can continue down the path that I'm on. And I can eat a ton of carbs and I can eat peanut butter chocolate pie every day of my life. I can do that if I want to, right? But there's this goodness in front of me. God has rescued, saved my life, literally, and given me a chance to make some changes to move forward. And from that day forward, my dad completely changed his diet. I mean, lost tons of weight, got as healthy as he's probably been since high school, but he did it because he was invited into goodness. He made a change because he was invited into goodness. So the Bible speaks of two kinds of grief that happens when we're caught in sin. It speaks of worldly sorrow when Paul says in Corinthians that worldly sorrow leads us to death. But godly sorrow, uh, conviction, leads us to life without regret. Don't you want that? Do you want life without regret? Now, the words that we would use are this. Uh, the psychological term is attrition. Attrition, when we're caught in sin, when things are exposed in us, when we're caught with our hand in the cookie jar, the question is, what's going to happen to me? That's a fear of consequence. That's attrition. That's worldly sorrow. And for many of us, here's what we've been told about confession and repentance. Well, you're gonna die and go to hell. And so then you're like, oh, if that's gonna happen to me, I better make some changes. Sure, great. That's attrition though. The Bible speaks of godly grief. David calls it a contrite heart, and that's what's called contrition. In contrition, the question is, what have I done and how could I? In light of the good grace of God, how could I do that? Attrition is, is you got caught. And so since it's easier to do it this way, let's just talk about our kids instead of us. When your kids get caught, with their hand in the cookie jar, they get caught in sin, they get caught in disobedience. You can recognize attrition 
as, as opposed to contrition. Can't you recognize it? You, you know what that looks like. And our kids do it. Um, we don't. We're adults. We never wrestle with this. But the kids, they struggle. And so you see it. But then, then you have that moment with your kid where, praise God, there's contrition. And unprovoked, that child comes to you like after the moment of discipline and just weeping. I'm so sorry. I didn't, I hurt your feelings. I did this, I did that, right? You, you know the difference. So when the Bible speaks of repentance, this is what we're speaking of is contrition. Because repentance out of fear of consequences is no repentance at all. That's not repentance. That might be grief and it might be guilt, but it's not repentance. Because true repentance carries a repulsion of our sin and a resolve to run from sin and toward Jesus. First things first, we have to hate our sin. And for many of us, that's not the case. If you were to be honest, the reason why you keep going back to that habitual sin is because you actually kind of like it. You like the way it makes you feel. You like the control it gives you. You like what it brings forth from you. Sure, there's moments of regret immediately afterwards, but in the moment, you, you really like it. And the reason it, you continue to, f- to go into that sin is because you love that sin more than you love Jesus. The reason that I continue in sin is because I love that sin more than I love Jesus, or I love the comfort of not confessing that sin more than I love Jesus. We'd be repulsed by our sin and have a resolve, like a steadfastness to run away from that sin but to run towards Jesus. This is what repentance looks like. In the Hebrew, the word means to change your mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. How many chicken finger at restaurant people do I have? Anybody like chicken fingers? Are you chicken finger people? How many of you, that's, wherever you go, you're getting chicken fingers. Is that you people? Yeah. You should grow up because there's better things to eat. But there's this moment, right, where you, you're a chicken finger guy and so you go um, to a steakhouse and you're like, I don't know, you got like a kid's meal, chicken finger thing? Can I have that? And so um, 45-year-old gets that, and then you're like, can I have some ranch? Because us Christians, we love us some ranch. Can I get some ranch with it? And so they bring that. Also some Diet Coke to balance out what I'm eating. And so that comes. But then you go to another time, and you, what you saw before was somebody had, had a steak, right? I mean, they just had this sirloin. You know, it was, I mean, you saw it. And it was medium, maybe medium well, but mostly medium because you don't go any higher than that if you're gonna eat steak like a man. And so you do that. Uh, and so you see it. And so the next time you go to the restaurant, you tell yourself, I've got a change of mind, right? My mind has changed. I saw how good that looked. I'm not gonna eat the chicken fingers. I'm gonna order the steak. Now, that in and of itself is not enough to make you order the steak. You have to actually order the steak. You can't just change your mind and then not actually follow through. That's not repentance. So you can't change your mind. You can't say, man, that sin is awful. I agree with God. And then the next time you're faced with the choice, choose the chicken fingers again. Are you with me? (laughs) Repentance, yeah, it's a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to action. The change of mind that leads to action. So we're gonna see that here in this passage because here's what's beautiful about repentance. Repentance is obvious. Like you don't have to try to figure it out. You don't have to figure out if somebody is repentant. It's obvious because there's action that follows repentance. There's action from it. So let's continue reading in verse 10. 
So God said to Moses, behold, pay attention. I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels or miracles such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And we saw that come true. We saw the walls of Jericho come down because there was musicians marching around. We see the sun stand still in Joshua. God does these things. Verse 11, so it says, observe in verse 10, or behold in verse 10, observe in verse 11. Observe, behold, and now focus in on, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Watch me do it. I'm gonna do this. And then verse 12, take care. What this insinuates is as you do it, as you're walking forward, as you're walking forward in new life, in repentance, in, in the promised land, as you're walking, be careful. There are things I need you to do. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. So God now is saying, you've seen my goodness. I saw you repent. You bowed your head. You acknowledged your sin. Now, the next step is there's action to follow. It's beautiful. There's actually action connected with repentance. You don't just get to change your mind and go back to chicken fingers. With repentance, you change your mind and you feast on the goodness of God. There are steps forward. There's practicality that comes from this. So how do we know? How do we know if we're repentant? How do we know if we have contrition or just attrition? Well, here's how we know. We, we steadfastly take steps forward. The first thing we have to do is remove. Verse 13, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughter for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. What you have to first do, the first act of repentance, once you acknowledge and confess that it's sin, is that you've got to remove the false gods in your life. You've got to get rid of them. And for some of us, the false god is inside of your calendar. The idol, the altar you're worshiping at may be found there. It might be found in your bank account. It might be found in your home. It might be found in your pantry, whatever it is. We've got to remove it. And not because God is restrictive, because God brings freedom. How do you know you're repentant? You do everything you can to remove that sin from your life. Secondly, we have to refuse. So now that you remove it, the next temptation in verse 17, you shall not make any gods of cast metal. Because now the temptation is, well, once I got rid of all the bad things, now I just turn good things and make them into ultimate things. Because once, once I abstain from those things that I used to struggle with, once I put these things on my computer or I do this with my phone or I uh, break off this relationship or I get rid of that um, that liquor from the cabinet, whatever it is, whatever you moved into, now the temptation is, I have a void. How do I fill that void? So now you think, well, I'm gonna take a good thing and I'm gonna make it an addiction for me. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. Be careful. Remove and then refuse to build a new altar. Refuse to cast idols of iron. Refuse. Thirdly, we have to Remember. God tells them to keep the feast of unleavened bread. This is the feast that he had them keep when they, when they were first set free from slavery in Egypt. And so the, the cry here is, in repentance is, you've gotta remember where you've come from. Remember the slavery you were in. Remember what it felt like. Remember what you hated. Remember it. 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib, you came out from Egypt. And it feels, again, it feels restrictive. I have to do it in that month? God's like, yes, do it in that month because that was the month in which I set you free. Why would you do it in a different month? So God's intentional because I, every year I want you to come face to face with this again. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons, you shall redeem. And this feels like, what? Because God wants you, us, wants them to remember. You remember how I saved your firstborn before? I want you to remember this. I want you to remember my goodness, remember my deliverance. Next, we have to rest. What does repentance look like? Well, we remove, we refuse, we remember, and we rest. Goodness, we rest. We rest in the finished work of Jesus. No more striving to prove, no more working to earn, we just rest. But he says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And we've heard that a million times before. But then he says this, in plowing time and in harvest you shall rest, because here's the temptation. I'd love to rest, I'm just so busy. Well, God's covered that. So in the busy times, it's rest. And we all know this rest is meant to be a day set aside to worship. So here's what's phenomenal about repentance. You know God's given us a, day, a way weekly to find ourselves walking in repentance? It's this. Like this is not just something you do because you're a good old Southern boy. And it's what your grandma taught you to do. What we're doing now is an act of Repentance. As an act of turning and choosing this over so many things you could be doing today. But you've made a declaration today. Whether you believe it or not, you've made a declaration today. This is more important than that. This is an act of repentance. This is an act of seeing the goodness of God, saying, how could I not go to church? How could I not be with his people? How could I not come to worship? If you've seen the goodness of God, you're not a two-month, two-Sunday-a-month attender of church. I'm sorry, I love you. But if you've seen the goodness of God, you're like, how do I not? And then we repeat it over and over and over and over again. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Now, if this is you, how long until this just becomes mundane and routine for you? Three times a year, men, you need to travel to do these weeks to worship, appear before the Lord on behalf of your family. Like, how long until that becomes just one more thing that I do on my calendar? But what God is saying is every year I want you to do this, three times a year. He says every week I want you to set this day aside. This is an act of repentance. This is an act of choosing the goodness of God. He says, I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. What happens for us in the repetition is we think, yeah, yeah, but if, if I do that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave this calendar open, I'm gonna leave my time open, I'm gonna leave my land open. What God is saying is, when you make that journey, I understand your land will feel vulnerable, I'm gonna take care of it. So when you set aside a day of worship, when you set aside moments of Easter and Christmas to celebrate the Lord your God, and the temptation is, yeah, but if I, if I do that instead of working, if I do that instead of this with my family, what God is saying is I'll take care of all of that. You just, in your repentance, you just run after me. You just run right after me. 
And we repeat it over and over and over again. And finally, we refrain. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, but they're pagan gods of fertility that they worshiped uh, by taking a young goat. Some of your translations say kid. It says don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. I would also encourage that for you. A kid being a young goat. So they would take this member of the goat and they would boil the milk of the mother and they would cook the meat of the child goat, the baby goat in that milk. Then they would take that milk and they would sprinkle on everything they wanted to be fertile, land, wives, daughters, and they would sprinkle it. And the belief then was that this God of fertility would then bless their crops. So here's the temptation. For me, as a junior in high school, I felt like I knew God was calling me into ministry and I was like, I don't, I don't think I wanna do that. I think I have other things I'd like to do that seem better than that. And I don't understand how the way you've created me, the things that I love align with what I know of pastors. I don't really wanna do that. So I made a deal with God, which I don't recommend, but I did. And I said, here's the deal. I would love for you to accept my offer um, that I will go be a civil engineering major and I will build parts of baseball stadiums and I'm gonna get so rich. I'm gonna get really, really rich. And then what I'll do for you, God, is I, I think I'll give you 11 or 12% of that. And God was like, that's cute, man. Um, I've got other things for you to do. <laughs> so it's gonna take a while, but you will see eye to eye with me. But what I was doing was I was trying to take the ways of the world to create an increase and then call that worship to God. The temptation is for us is to use the ways of the world to provide first fruits that we offer to God and call that worship. It's not worship, it's dirty money. That's what that is. And so we have to refrain from trying to prove ourselves through the world's means. So I say all that to say this. Repentance is obvious over a long period of time. If the Israelites would have continued to walk in this, no one would ever ever have questioned their repentance, but they didn't. There are some of us today where our sin has been exposed. And in the exposure, God has revealed his goodness to us. And so you've got a decision to make. Will you mourn over the consequences or will you mourn over the depravity of your sin and repent of it? And it's obvious what you're doing obvious for each and every one of us. I have a friend who about a year or so ago was just caught in sin, exposed, and for not the first time, but there was something different this time for him and that he hated what was happening. Sure, he hated the effects on his wife and his kids and family and the distance that caused between friends and family, but something happened in this moment that was different. And there's a way that God orients our lives and puts people in our lives that we can have these conversations with and and So we got connected and had some conversations. And so over the course of the past nine months to a year or so, here's what I've seen this friend of mine do. I've seen this guy show up every Sunday morning at church. I saw him in the first few months exposed in his sin, continue to show up. I saw him uh, join a, a small group where he'd have to talk about stuff and be in that small group almost every Sunday. I saw him start going to one way to deal with the strongholds in his life and he hasn't missed a Friday since. I've seen him do his own personal counseling. I've seen him love his wife and take his wife on dates. I've I've seen all of that. I've seen him reach out when he needs help. I've seen those things. You know what that tells me about this man? He is repentant. Praise God. And he's walking in freedom. And there are other people in my life who their sin has been exposed. 
and they really feel guilty about it and hate that it makes their wife angry at them and causes distance between him and their children. And yet, keep eating the chicken fingers. When God reveals his goodness to us, the only proper response is repentance, true biblical repentance. Romans chapter two, verse four, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Listen, if you're gonna take lightly how good God has been to you, we're gonna read in verse five, there's something coming. Or, and not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, continues in verse five, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I'm just saying, when God reveals his goodness to us, there's two ways we can handle it. One is like Moses, we bow our heads and we worship. When God says things like, I, the Lord your God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin to thousands. We need to stop right there and get on our knees and thank God for his mercy. Because God also tells us he will punish the sinner. Now, here's what's great about followers of Jesus. God was true to his word that he did not leave sin unpunished. But the mercy he showed us is that Jesus took that punishment on our behalf. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't pretend it wasn't there. He didn't say, oh, it's not that big of a deal, buddy. No, 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 it's a big deal. It's so big of a deal, I'm gonna have my son go to the cross on behalf of your sin. So for us this morning, I think the first thing we have to do is begin to recount God's goodness in our life. He's been so good to us and gracious and that he's given us things we don't deserve. He's been merciful and he's withheld the wrath that we rightfully deserve. He's been slow to anger. He's given us chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. And he's abounding in steadfast love. He's not going anywhere. You can't scare him away. We need to recount how good he has been then the only proper response for us is repentance. And repentance is obvious. So for the person this morning who is seeing the goodness of God and his mercy towards us, would you repent today? And maybe today it's that initial act of repentance. You haven't actually repented of your sin that God would forgive you and save you. Sure, you tried to do all the right things and you tried to work yourself out of debt to God, but the deal is you know you can and so the initial repentance spurred on by the Holy Spirit now has to lead you towards action, declaring him Lord. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this repentance is an ongoing practice of followers of Jesus. Because the more, the closer you get to Jesus, the more the smallest of sins feel like big things to you. And the same call is true that we would repent of those sins. And it's obvious that we've made changes. It's obvious that we're walking in repentance today. There's a third group of us that I wanna to speak to today. And that's this. You are not the gatekeeper of someone else's repentance. God decides. Now what's beautiful is that he invites us into this view of seeing fully repentant people. 
And our church is full of fully repentant people. And what we have to do is stop being the judge and jury. And we need to start being cheerleaders on towards repentance. We need to start seeing people's decisions and motives in light of this. It looks like repentance. And let's trust that maybe it is. But if someone has proven themselves to be unrepentant, you've got some decisions to make with that relationship and that friendship. But I think we need to do all we can as followers of Jesus to cheer on the repentant. If you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll wrap up. I don't know where you find yourself today. If you're in need of repentance, if you were just to be honest this morning and say, no, there's sin in my life and every Sunday we confess it and I think I repent it, but what's true is that it's actually attrition. I'm actually guilty of the consequences. I'm afraid of what it's going to cost me. Would you just raise your hand and say, no, I think it's more attrition for me. Yeah, praise the Lord for being honest. There's freedom in your honesty. I wonder how many of us today would say, no, I think, I mean, my heart, I think there's repentance there. I just... I need the courage and boldness to start taking active steps in repentance. Just raise your hand and say, no, my heart is there. I just, I need to start to tear down false gods. I need to start refusing to build new ones. Yeah, praise the Lord. What's great about God is that he is slow to anger. And if you've got breath in your lungs today, you've got another shot. You're not too far gone. You haven't wasted too much. He's so good. He's giving you a shot today. So acknowledge your sin. Let's walk in repentance together. We might declare to the world that as followers of Jesus, we're not perfect people. We're just repentant people. And they'd be drawn to the power and the goodness of God. God, we love you. This morning has been powerful through the worship and just being together. And I'm thankful that you've given us this opportunity that we get to do this together. So for those of us, God, who are walking Um, in the midst of repentance, God, would you give us the courage and strength to continue repeating the behaviors you've called us to? For those of us today who need to tear down false gods, who have idols in our home and in our heart need to be torn down, God, give us the courage to bring other people in. Maybe our hammer's not heavy enough. We need some help. God, I pray that you would help us to be a practicing people of repentance. That your goodness would spur us forward. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.